Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming out on a rainy Sunday. There's a faith question that I believe looms large and probably lives in the minds of many, many people. And that question is, can I be certain that I am accepted by God? Can, can I have a confidence that there really is the possibility of salvation and that I have it? Today we're looking at the parable of the wedding feast, and that parable answers that question. So Jesus, his go-to form of teaching was short stories, or the Bible calls them parables. And parable literally means to throw alongside. So a parable literally is a very clear, simple, relatable reality, something that people would understand from everyday life that was set alongside a spiritual truth or a principle that would help people understand God and his kingdom. So Greg started this message series a couple of weeks ago, and when he did, he mentioned that sometimes these parables are confusing. And not just to us today, but even to the people who heard Jesus speak them, there were moments that it was confusing. And you really have to wonder why. I mean, if Jesus wants us to understand what's true and he wants us to experience God and have a relationship with him, why would he tell stories that aren't perfectly clear and understandable? Well, his disciples actually asked the exact same question, and I'm not sure, but maybe they saw the confused looks on people's faces while Jesus was teaching, or maybe they just thought, I know, I don't understand that, so probably they don't either. So they literally asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 13. He answers that question and he says, whenever someone has a ready heart for this, talking about understanding God and his kingdom, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there is no readiness, any trace of negative receptivity soon disappears. That's why I tell stories to create readiness, to nudge people toward a welcome awakening. In their present state, they can stare till doomsday and not see it, listen till they're blue in the face and not get it. So the truth is this. It requires an honest kind of curiosity and a real sense of humility to really grasp what Jesus is saying in these intriguing stories called parables. I want to begin this morning just by reading uh, the story of the parable of the wedding feast. So this is in Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> it says, Jesus responded by telling more stories. God's kingdom, he said, is like a king who threw a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out servants to call in all the invited guests, and they wouldn't come. He sent out another round of servants, instructing them to tell the guests, look, everything is on the table. The prime rib is ready for carving. Come to the feast. They only shrugged their shoulders and went off, one to weed his garden, another to work in his shop. The rest, with nothing better to do, beat up on the messengers and then killed them. The king was outraged and sent his soldiers to destroy those thugs and level their city. 
Then he told his servants, we have a wedding banquet all prepared, but no guests. The ones I invited weren't up to it. Go out into the busiest intersections in town and invite anyone you find to the banquet. The servants went out on the streets and rounded up everyone they laid eyes on, good and bad, regardless. And so the banquet was on, every place filled. When the king entered and looked at, over the scene, he spotted a man who wasn't properly dressed. He said to him, friend, how dare you come in here looking like that? The man was speechless. Then the king told his servants, get him out of here fast. Tie him up and ship him to hell and make sure he doesn't get back in. That's what I mean when I say many get invited, only a few make it. Now, some aspects of this story really sort of make sense, but there's probably a little bit of context that might be helpful for time and distance, because this story was told 2,000 years ago, and it was essentially set in a Near East country. So there's probably some things that we could learn about the culture that will help us understand the story better. So first, one of the things, and you might have actually caught it in the story, is it was normal. It was the custom when someone would invite people to a large party like this that there would be two invitations. So the first one would be sort of the the save-the-date invitation that would go out months or maybe even up to a year in advance that would tell people that the party is coming. And then the day of the party, someone like this king would send out his messengers and tell the people who had been invited, it's time to come, everything is ready, the party is prepared. So it's a, that's part of what makes it a little bit puzzling when these people who have been invited have such strange excuses and you have this chorus of excuses like, I need to mow my lawn, I, I need to catch up on some work, I got a little bit of shopping I need to do. These are not the kinds of things that normally would keep someone from attending the party of the year, so to speak. So it is hard to imagine at the same time that you've thrown this big party and literally no one shows up. And when you hear the reason, they seem petty to say the least. So the king, he responds with destruction of these people, but he also is persistent in making sure that the party is still going to happen. And he sends his messengers out, and he says, this time I want you to invite anyone and everyone. Go anywhere in the city and just ask people to come and fill up the banquet hall. And the people that come are not his friends, They're not the people that would have invited the king to a party. These are just total strangers. And it seems so random to have those people come to an event like this. These people didn't have months to prepare, but when they were asked, they showed up, and soon the party was full. So there's this moment in this wedding feast where there, it's a very, very awkward sort of moment. And I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding or a party like this where there was someone who ruined the party or ruined the wedding. Or maybe you've been the person who did ruin the wedding. 
So I want to show you a picture up here. Um, yeah, when you, when you see that picture, I don't know about you, but I can quickly transport back to 1988. Uh, the All-Star Game, the NBA All-Star Game was in Chicago. Uh, Michael Jordan was, man, he was just taking Chicago by storm in those days. I was right there in the eye of the storm. Uh, nothing I loved more than watching him play. So, as I said, NBA All-Star Weekend, I mean, it was going to be awesome, but my friend's getting married, and I'm in the wedding. So, it was kind of tough. Now, it's not as if I was actually going to be in Chicago Stadium no matter what, but I certainly would have been planted in front of the television. So my friend, who's also in the wedding with me, comes up with this plan, and he says, I know what we can do. In between the wedding and the reception, we can sneak out, and we can go and watch the slam dunk contest, that moment right there that we wanted to see. So we do. We leave. We go to you know, this friend's house. We're watching the slam dunk contest, and trust me, Michael did not disappoint. So it was, it was an awesome show. But uh, there was someone else who was very, very disappointed. So this was one of those weddings where after the ceremony, you come all to the reception area, and they're going to announce all the people who were in the wedding, introduce them. Yeah, you know where I'm going, right? So they're introducing everybody. So my friend Tim and I are nowhere to be found. So, and this was kind of concerning because they didn't know where we were. I think it made it worse when they found out where we were, but they didn't know where we were, sort of worried. So when we show up, um, the bride, I mean, she was beside herself. The groom, he's an NBA, he's a big basketball fan. I think he sort of understood, you know, the dilemma that we were in, of wanting to see that slam dunk contest. But uh, Sue was not having it at all. As a matter of fact, we had been banished from the party, and instead of us being introduced she had some of the ushers come in to take our place and make sure that we were not introduced. So it was a little bit difficult, but it was this, this awkward moment when you feel like the party is sort of ruined and it's your fault. In the story that Jesus tells, there's a moment when it becomes very, very awkward because the king comes into the party, and as he's looking around, he sees one person there that doesn't have the right clothes on. It's because of the way he's dressed. And that's, that's probably just a little bit strange to us today because in this day and time, we're a little bit more low-key. I mean, you can wear anything, and almost even to a wedding, jeans are fine, right? We're not into that empty formalism of getting all dressed up. In this day, you would wear the right clothes to a wedding, and this was a big deal. So why is it that this guy doesn't have the right clothes on? I mean, you probably could think of a couple of reasons, but one is maybe he just literally couldn't afford them. So as Matthew tells this story, he's not the only person who is writing about Jesus and his life. There were four biographers, you could say. There was another guy named Luke who also wrote about Jesus telling this story and in his version, he says that when the messengers went out the second time, they invited the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled. So it's very likely that this guy literally just doesn't have the money to afford nice clothes for the wedding. 
But the other thing, which is probably more understandable, is the fact that he's kind of one of those second-round draft choice kind of people that just got invited the day of. He never got the save-the-date invitation. So he didn't find out until this morning that he's coming to the party, and he just maybe didn't have time to get a tux. So we come to this moment in the story where you might say the moment of confrontation. When the king comes in and he literally says to him, friend, how dare you come in here looking like that? And it says the man was speechless. And that's important, the fact that he was speechless because I don't think I would have been speechless. I probably would have been one of the people who would say, well, you know what, like not all of us have money like you do and guess what? By the way, I didn't know about this party until this morning so I didn't, sorry, I didn't have time to go rent a tux and look spectacular. I might have pushed back just a little bit but it says this man is speechless and that's part of the key to actually unlock and understand this story The key to Matthew's story is sort of a cultural note, which might be lost on us, but everybody who was listening to Jesus knew very well that if a king was having a wedding party for his son, at a gala like that, when people came as guests to the party, each person was given wedding clothes to wear when they entered the party. That's why it says the man is speechless. And that's why the king is sort of justified in being upset and literally even kicking him out of the party is because there were no excuses. The wedding clothes were provided. So what's the spiritual truth that Jesus is hoping that we will see. I mean, what do we lay alongside this story about this wedding feast that is going to be that moment that helps us grasp the kingdom of God and sort of move us into a life-changing experience because now we see what Jesus is saying. What is it? Well, first, I think it's important to know that all throughout the Bible... Clothes are used as a metaphor, and it shows position or acceptance or status. So, for example, if you've read the Bible, if you've heard some of the Bible stories, you might have heard of a young boy named Joseph. He was one of 12 brothers, and even though he was born number 11, he was treated as if he were the firstborn, which was the person in the family who would have special privileges. So Joseph being the favorite, it was, it was clear to everyone in the family that Joseph was the favorite because his father had given him this beautiful multicolored cloak or robe that showed this is my favorite and he's going to be the one who's going to get all the rights and privileges of someone who is first born. You can look at the moment of Jesus on the cross and the fact that he is literally stripped naked. Now, it doesn't matter what time or culture, being naked publicly is going to be humiliating no matter what. But this was the moment that was the lowest form of being degraded because Jesus had been completely stripped 
And he had all of the shame of being viewed by these people with absolutely not a stitch of clothes on. Or if you go all the way back to the beginning, to the story of Adam and Eve, do you remember the moment when they actually eat the fruit and they realize when they've sinned that they are also naked? And they look at each other embarrassed to stand before God and they begin to try to create something to cover themselves and they use the leaves of a fig tree trying to cover themselves, but God comes to see them. And he actually kills animals and covers them with the animals and he provides the clothing that they need. What's even more interesting is if you go all the way to the end of the story in the Bible and you come to Revelation 19 verses 6 and 7, it describes us, all of us, at a wedding feast of the Lamb, the, the, the Revelation calls it. This, this wedding party that God, our King, is giving. And when he invites us into the party, each person is given a robe. Beautiful, pure, white linen, washed in the blood of the Lamb, it says. I think what Jesus is really trying to help us see is this story talks about ways that people approach God. Some of us walk in here today, when we walk into a church or even just think about God, and we feel anxious and guilty, and we feel like we'll never be what God really wants us to be. There's too much in our past, and we have far too little willpower to change our bad habits or get the messed up lives that we have back together. And maybe we feel just a little bit overwhelmed by the inadequacy of it all. I'll tell you how this shows up. This shows up when we hear the words coming out of our mouth that say, you know what, if you knew what was really in my past, if you knew everything that I'd done, you would understand why God could never love me. Or if you knew all the junk in my life, you would understand why I'm not going to fit in church. I'm not going to be someone who can be in that kind of a setting. Others of us come in and we actually feel pretty good about ourselves, to be honest, comparatively speaking. We look at other people and we think, yeah, my life is kind of messed up, but I'm not as messed up as she is. Or I may not be the best example of goodness, but I'm a lot better than he is. And you know the sign of this one? The sign of that kind of thinking, that kind of mentality is the phrase, nobody's perfect. That whole conversation about whether or not anybody's perfect is probably the most understated thing that's ever been said. There's no chance that any of us could ever be considered perfect. I think in reality, the rest of that thinking that says nobody's perfect is, nobody's perfect, but I'm a lot better than most people. Kind of trying to feel good about ourselves by comparing to everyone else around us. Typically, these are the people like me. Go to church, read the Bible, 
give money to God. All the actions that you might think that appear as if a person has it all together. But here's the bottom line. Both of these ways of thinking have one thing in common, a common root, and that is the pride of approaching God thinking that our actions determine our relationship with him. Whether it's, I can never be good enough, so why should I even try? Or, you know what? I'm better than most people, so I think I'm probably in a pretty good place with God. Both of those ways of thinking are the guy at the party who came in without the wedding clothes. Metaphorically speaking, we've come dressed in our own clothes. And it doesn't matter whether you think you're not good enough or you think you're just good enough. The pride that gets in our way isn't necessarily a cocky arrogance. More often, it's the pride of thinking, I'll fix this by myself. I got me into this. I'm going to get me out of this. I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need any help. You know, I think what Jesus most would love for us to hear in this story is for us to simply hear God whisper these words to each one of us. Why don't you just put on the robe that I gave you? Literally meaning, stop trying so hard to be accepted by the God who has proven he loves you more than anyone else ever could. The one who has said, I promise to not only take care of your past, but everything that you ever will do. And in an act of faith on your part, God takes away all the guilt and the anxiousness. And in that moment, he makes you whole and right. Bible words being holy and righteous. He makes you what he wants you to be with his own decision and with his own power. If you will take that step of faith. Jesus, I think, is hoping that no matter what kind of pride it is that we struggle with, that we'll give it up and we'll live in the peace that he's created for us to live in. Here's a verse, God's words, not mine, that wraps this up in just a few words from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, saving is all God's idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. Now we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. And that, when the Bible talks about grace, is exactly what it means to be completely, unconditionally accepted by God because he loves you.